morning. Preschoolers, you guys can go ahead and take off, head to your preschool church. The rest of you, if you want, you can open up to Psalm chapter 73 with me. We're going to be camping out there this morning. For the longest time, I've had like this weird secondhand fear for Grant whenever he's got this thing on his face. I always have this fear that like one day it's going to get unmuted and we're all going to hear him just belting at the top of his lungs. <laughs> now it's firsthand. So the whole time we were singing, I was up there, okay, we're muted, we're good. So, and it's good for you guys that you didn't hear that. <laughs> But Psalm chapter 73 is where we're going to be this morning. You can open up there. September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland from the west. And two days later, France and Britain would declare war against Germany. This would mark the beginning of World War II. Several years later, the tail end of this war, the Imperial Army in Japan would train a man by the name of Hiro Onada. He'd be trained as an intelligence officer, and he was sent out to Lubang Island, which is in the Philippines. And his orders were really clear. Go and gather intel, prevent enemy attacks from happening, and don't surrender until one of your commanding officers relieves you of your duty. It wasn't long before Onada got to the island of Lubang that U.S. forces quickly overtook the island. And on September, in September of 1945, Japan officially signed surrender documents and World War II was over. However, Hiro Onada's war was only beginning. For nearly 29 more years, Onada would continue to fight the war of World War II. He'd pull back into the mountains, into the forests, and he'd spend 29 years performing guerrilla warfare tactics, gathering intel, trying to prevent enemy attacks. Flyers and posters and newspaper articles would come out, and he'd see them saying that the war was ended. Locals and farmers would plead with him, stop, the war's over. You don't need to keep doing this anymore. He saw all of that as some ploy, some tactic to get him to surrender. He stayed firm, held his ground, continued to gather intel, prevent enemy attacks. In 1959, the Japanese government declared Onada dead. Some people held on to the fact that he might still be alive, and he became somewhat of an urban legend. So much of an urban legend that some years later, in 1974, a young man by the name of Suzuki, Nirio Suzuki, he announced a quest. On this quest, he was going to go try and find Hiro Onada, a panda, and the abominable snowman, all in that order. Well, Suzuki went to the island of Lubang and miraculously was able to find Hiro Onada in the mountains. He spent some time with him, trying to plead with him, trying to convince him, hey, the war is actually over. You can come home now. You don't need to keep carrying out these tactics. Onada still wasn't convinced, so he went back to the mountains, and Suzuki went back to Japan, with the help of the Japanese government, he was able to locate one of Onada's officers. He got the officer, went back to Lubang Island, and there Onada was finally relieved of his duties by his commanding officer. For nearly three decades, Hiro Onada fought in a war that didn't even exist. 29 years of his life in the mountains fighting in a battle that only existed in his mind. 
This morning, I wonder how often we, as Christians, live our lives like Hiro Onada. Not in the sense that we go live in the mountains and carry out guerrilla warfare tactics, but in the sense that we live our lives with the same misinformed perspective and terribly wrong understanding of reality. How often do we look at the world around us and think to ourselves, why? How often do we see unbelievers thriving, living their best life, look at the troubles that we have or other Christians have, experience the pain that comes with staying faithful, and think to ourselves, is it worth it? Why are we suffering while the rest of the unbelieving world smiles and laughs and seems to flourish. Last week we talked about 1 Timothy 6 and we discussed godliness and contentment and the great gain that comes from that. And our key phrase from last week that Dave shared with us was that practicing gratitude and thankfulness kills envy and covetousness and paves the way for godliness with contentment which produces great gain. And Dave actually talked about how sin in the world causes us to look horizontally instead of vertically. This morning, we're going to revisit that reality, that same reality of looking horizontally instead of vertically, but we're actually going to pose a bigger question. Some might call it life's biggest question. Why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things seem to happen to God's people? Spurgeon would describe this as the ancient stumbling block of good men, the present prosperity of the wicked, and the sorrows of the godly. Whether you've been there before, whether you're in this sea right now, every single one of us is going to be faced with this reality at some point and likely many points in our Christian walk. Psalm 73, as we're going to see this morning, through the example of Asaph, helps us to answer this question. It helps us to understand and make sense of what seems to be going on out in the world, the internal war that we struggle with on the inside, and the fact that the war has ceased because of Christ. And now more than ever, do we need to learn and understand and apply the lesson that Asaph learned in this psalm. We need to know how to make sense of the prosperity of the wicked. More than that, we need to know how to live as faithful followers of Christ in light of this reality. But we need God's help, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us during this time. Father, as we come to you this morning, we have heavy hearts. We have struggles, we have pain, we have loss. And some of us look at the world around us and see the lack of those things and the unbelievers and those who make fun of you even. We seem to see that they're, they have it all good. But this morning, Lord, we're reminded even through our situations that there is pain and trouble in our lives. So God, as we come to your word this morning, and we see the example of Asaph in Psalm 73. Lord, would you just refresh us? 
remind us and help us to have the right perspective on this world. Help us to know that you are good in spite of all the bad things that seem to happen to us and in spite of all the good things that seem to happen to the evil ones. God, would you just prepare our hearts to receive the truths that are found in Psalm 73 this morning and help us to love you and know you and make more of you in this world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. The right question you should be asking is, who is Asaph? I'm glad you asked the question. You guys are good students. Asaph is actually accredited to writing or performing Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83. And Asaph was a Levite who was appointed by King David to oversee the worship in the temple. We can read a little bit about him in First and Second Chronicles, but there's not a whole lot of historical context about him, just the fact that we know that he had a musical role in the corporate worship gathering that, in, 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 that was held in the temple. Words. He had a prominent position of spiritual authority in Jerusalem, and this psalm was written during a time when Asaph suffered from spiritual apathy when he looked at the promises of the world and for a moment thought them to be more valuable than the eternal hope that he had. And this psalm is really one long story, a journey of his coming to age, but it's broken up into three sections, as you see on the screen. We're going to see those. He starts off looking at the war that exists outside. He looks out into the world and sees the war that is happening. He then takes us into the war that's happening within the struggle that he has is in his heart as he's considering what's going on around him. And then he's reminded that the war has in fact ceased. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to see the war outside, the war within, and the war ceased. So we'll start with the war outside. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here in Psalm 73, and this is the case in several other psalms and places in Scripture, rather than just chronologically taking us through the story, Asaph lists the solution at the beginning. He states the conclusion very clearly that he came to after this journey had happened. He says, truly, God is good. And he does that for a reason. Because as we go through this story and we see things unpacking, he wants us to do so with the mindset of knowing that God is good. When we look at the world around us, when we look at what's going on in our heart, we need to know that God is good. And there's one word I want to make mention of in this verse, the word truly. I'll make mention of it again later, but just hold on to that. Truly, certainly, surely, without a doubt, God is good. We see the conclusion that he comes to, and he wants us to remember that as we walk through this journey. So let's walk this journey with Asaph and come to the conclusion that truly God is good. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's happened here? How did we go from truly God is good 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. It's almost as if Asaph is considering who God is and his character and his attributes and saying that all exists out here for them, but that doesn't exist for me. Truly God's good, but for me, mm, at least not right now. He's jealous. He's envious. But what exactly is he jealous of? Well, he says that he's envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's looking out at the world, he's seeing unbelievers, and he's jealous of their prosperity. And this prosperity isn't some temporary, fleeting, passing prosperity. The word that's used here is the word shalom. If you know anything about the word shalom, it it depicts this wholehearted, complete peace. It's often used to describe God's people when they are resting with peace in the Lord. So Asaph is looking out at these wicked people, and he thinks for a moment that they have shalom, that they have lasting true peace and comfort and prosperity without God. We know that that's not true, but let's journey with Asaph some more. Let's see what he thinks this shalom looks like as he's looking at the world around him. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Essentially, they seem to glide right into death. Their deaths aren't cruel or harsh or slow or gruesome. They seem to close their eyes and fall peacefully into sleep and then just slowly pass away. Their bodies are fat and sleek. This isn't a knock at them, trying to tell them that they need to go get a membership at their local gym. He's simply saying that they have all the food that they could want. They don't wonder where their next meal is going to come from. In fact, they just eat in abundance and throw the scraps away. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. These people, they seem to not have the same kind of problems that we do. I mean, why would they? They're prosperous. They've got all the money that they need. They can just go see the best doctors. They can build the strongest houses so that when the storms come, they still stand. Trouble just doesn't seem to follow them. Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Because that they don't seem to have the same troubles that we do, they walk around with pride. I don't have to worry about that. I can't believe you have to worry about that. They're not made fun of for the way that they live their lives like us Christians seem to be. They're not challenged for their ways of thinking. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Violence covers them as a garment. They're evil. These are just evil, wicked people. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Anything that they see, they get. And everything that they want is foolish. It's folly. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Everything that these people say is evil. Not only that, but everywhere you go, you can hear their words resonating.
They're walking around speaking evil, lies, speaking violence, oppressing people, and all the time they're doing it, they're just thumbing their nail at God. They're looking to God and saying, that's foolish. Mocking God, making fun of him, making fun of those who follow him. And while this is happening, verse 10 happens. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in him. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? These people aren't just living their own lives in this ecosystem of sin. It's actually spreading. They're building up an army of evil ones. Even God's people, people who were following the Lord, saw what they were doing, turned their backs, and started walking with them. I like the way one commentator describes this. The power of the wicked is in large measure their ability to evoke jealous coveting in the hearts of the righteous. When we watch the wicked with envy as they live out their opulent ways, an agony of spirit begins. And what makes this uniquely challenging for us today in our media-indulged culture is the fact that we, in a matter of minutes or days, can see more of this evil than Asaph would have seen in his entire lifetime. The tips of our fingers, we have access to unlimited amounts of fame, fortune, success, money, and power than anyone in history has ever had. And beyond the fact that we see more of it, our culture seems to parade it a little bit louder than most. Not only are we soaking in this content, but we're being told each and every day that this is the way you should go. And in fact, if you're going any other way, that Christian way, that's the oppressive way. That's the wrong way. This is the way you should go. Look at all these shiny objects. Come follow us. It's the words of our culture. I mean, just look at the American dream. Have a nice house, a big family, white picket fence, get that nice golden retriever dog, get a nice job, have a nice truck, have financial freedom and all the money you could ever need. Go out to eat at the best restaurants and do anything and everything you can to achieve this. This temptation is woven into the fabric of our culture and now more than ever, we need to learn and understand the lesson that Asaph has come to in this psalm. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. I'm sure you can imagine the confusion and the temptation that Asaph is having at this point. He's looking out at the world and seeing the people who are mocking him and God. They seem to be doing just fine. But he takes us a little bit further on this journey. Rather than looking at the situation around him and make, making all the blames and pointing fingers at everything else besides himself, he's vulnerable and transparent and shares the war that actually goes on within. Verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands with innocence. 
For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. How bad actually is this struggle going on within himself? How bad actually is it? Verse 13 points us to that. In most of our modern translations, we can't see the depth in this verse. Some translations do still hold it. But if you look back at verse 1, remember that word that I told you to to take note of, the word truly. That same Hebrew word comes before all in vain. So this, this verse can be better understood with truly In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands with innocence. With the same degree of certainty that he has that God is good, he had that same degree of certainty that I've done all of this in vain. Without a doubt, I have kept my heart clean in vain. And how we recognize this, if we're honest with ourselves, How often we look out into the world, jealous, angry, envious of the easy life that unbelievers seem to have. How we look at this example in Asaph with a chip on our shoulder with some pride and think we would never look at evil people and be jealous with them, jealous of them. But if we're truly honest, there have been points in our life when we have looked the unbelieving world, hit the pause button for a second and just thought to ourself, is it worth it? I left all my old sinful ways behind. The people I was with are all married. They've got great jobs. He's got a sweet truck. Life seems to be treating them pretty well. Is it really worth it? For me, this was especially a struggle early in my Christian walk. I wasn't faithfully following the Lord until my junior year of college, so age 19, 20 is when I started following the Lord. Um, I had lots of friends and family members that I had strong relationships with, built upon the same kind of lifestyle that Asaph is seeing in the world of unbelievers. I was living that life with these people, went off to a camp one summer, came back that next school year, a totally different man. And that whole school year really served as this psalm to me. Looking out at my friends, still doing the same things that we were doing last year, and thinking to myself, is it really worth it? They're having so much fun. He cheated on that test and got an A. I studied for hours and got a C. That's what struggle looked like in my Christian walk. Some of us, it looks like living a long life for Christ, and then at some point later in our life, hitting the pause button, looking at everything and thinking to ourselves, hmm, you know, it's not too late to turn my life around. To start that new business venture, to maybe enter in, introduce a little bit of dishonesty in my work here, to make more sales that way. Maybe I'll have better luck finding a job or making my name, a name for myself the same way the world does. You know, it's not too late. 
you've been there, you know the feeling. If you're there now, you feel this pressure, this temptation every passing day. And if you haven't been there, I don't mean to discourage you, rather to prepare you, you will be there at some point. There will be a moment in your life when the things that you thought you had such a tight grip on are going to be ripped out of your hands. You're going to be knocked to your knees. You're going to look out at the world around you and you're going to see everyone seeming to be doing just fine. And you're going to think to yourself, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? That's where Asaph is at right now. At this point, Asaph is convinced that all he has done to the Lord, done to be faithful to the Lord, was done in vain. He's feeling the full weight of the unbelieving world seeming to flourish. He's doubting his very faith in the Lord. And it's so bad that he says, if I had, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Because of his prominent position of spiritual authority in the temple and in the town of Jerusalem, if he would have spoken out loud the struggle that was going on within him, it was so bad that an entire generation of children that likely looked up to him and saw him leading worship would have completely been ruined. And this is just a little helpful reminder to us that sin doesn't just exist in an eco chamber. Sin has ramifications. It has consequences. It affects everyone around us. We tend to think that my sin just exists right here in this little corner with just me. That's not how sin works. An entire generation of children would have been betrayed. So how did Asaph go from this place, from I was envious of the arrogant, how did he go from there to truly God is good? Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until I went into the presence of God, I saw the world and thought it was better. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, I thought everything I was doing was pointless. I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph went into the presence of God and he was reminded of who God actually is. He was reminded of what's actually taking place in the war outside. His perspective shifted and the war within was ceased. And what a beautiful gift it is to have a place to come worship the Lord together. I mean, really, what, this is a gift that we get to be here this morning with each other. And that could be a sermon in and of itself. 
because of the fact that our current age likes to push this virtual world. And I was wondering when I was preparing this, how Asaph would have struggled with this in our context. How much harder it would have been for him in a context that told him, you don't have to go to church. Just stay at home. Watch from your TV. Stay in your pajamas. Don't get vulnerable with people. Keep them at an arm's length. Don't let people into your life. I imagine that he would have had a lot more pain. This would have been a lot longer of a journey if he lived in our culture and was constantly told that church isn't really important. This is the place of worship, the holy place. The psalmist entered the temple, and it was there that he was reminded of who God is. And I like the way that Tate, a commentator, puts it. See if I can find it. The place of worship becomes a turning point in the faith of the psalmist. This is the crux of this psalm. It wasn't until he went into the presence of God that he truly understood what was happening. And I'd planned to spend the majority of this section kind of highlighting the truths that Asaph was reminded of when he went into the sanctuary. But I think it'd be more appropriate for me to share some practical application of what going to the sanctuary might actually look like, especially in our New Testament age. First and foremost, I think it looks like communing with God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we do that? Well, we pray to him. We read his word. We spend time listening to him as he's revealed to us his character and his work, how this world actually actually operates. All that is necessary for life and godliness is found in this word. So we read the word. We listen to the word being taught to us each week and any time in between that we find time. We sing and we worship God. We taste and see that the Lord is in fact good. It's hard for you to know that something's good unless you're tasting it. Go to a restaurant, someone asks if that's good. I can't tell them, yes, it's good if I've never actually tried it. So how do we know that the Lord is good? We taste and see that the Lord is good. And how do we taste? We pray, we read, we sing, we worship. Commune with God. Next, I think fellowship and accountability is a good way to be reminded of the truths of the world around us. At church, each Sunday, but also in small groups. Beyond just those two occasions, though, it's real life-on-life relationships. Truly opening yourself up to someone, allowing someone to see you for who you really are, to hold you accountable, to challenge you, to encourage you when you're down. It means having fellowship and accountability in your life. Then lastly, I think it looks like being a blessing. Instead of us just coming in here and having our own little holy huddle and just sharing all of this fun stuff with each other, 
It looks like going out into the world, bringing the gospel to places, caring for the needs of others. And as we do that, we're continually refreshed and reminded of who God is and the goodness that we have received through Christ. But this switch, we see it here in one verse. In real life, this isn't like a light switch. It's not like when we're struggling and doubting our faith that we can just go over to the wall and just flip the switch back on and we're good to go. It takes time. Day in and day out, disciplining ourselves to do these things, even when we may not feel like it, being refreshed, reminded, encouraged, strengthened by God. When Asaph went into the sanctuary, when he went into the temple, the things that he was reminded of, there were three things that he was reminded of. The first one is that God punishes sin. Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, you will make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. This isn't topic that's light, easy to hear, fun to hear. Our culture likes to not make much of sin, sweep it under the rug, ignore it, just talk about all the good things about being a Christian. But we're reminded here, and this reminder actually served as encouragement to Asaph, that God punishes sin. This is a very sobering and humbling reminder of just how severe sin actually is. It's a wake-up call to the true danger for those who do walk in sin. And we have the tendency to look at those walking in sin and point our finger at them and say, hmm, you've got coming to you something that you don't even know yet. But this should soften our hearts toward them when we remember the fact that God punishes sin, when we see people sinning, we know what's coming, even if they don't know, our heart towards them should be one of compassion, pleading with them, caring for them, not one of pride. When we're struggling with the question of why do good things seem to happen to bad people, I think we're, we have the wrong perspective of what's actually happening. We see unbelievers making fun of God, making a fool of themselves, indulging in all of these things and getting all the money and the power and the fame that they want. And we think to ourselves, that's prospering. But what's really happening when we remember that they're going to have to answer to all of these things is they're just racking up a laundry list of things that one day when this earth passes away, they're going to have to answer for. We see it as flourishing but God is just giving them over to their pleasures. Their hearts are becoming harder and harder and harder and harder. The more that they get, the more that they take, the further away they fall from loving God and the more that they're going to have to answer to when this life passes. Just because sinners have healthy bodies or happiness or material wealth, that does not mean that they're spiritually wealthy. In fact, to borrow language from Ephesians 2, 
they're spiritually dead. And we've been there, so it's not like we can look at them and have any ounce of pride. We were all once sinners, still are sinners, now redeemed by God, but we were spiritually dead at one point in our life. So we can't look at them, point our fingers, make fun of them, have pride. This is why we have compassion, because we love because he first loved us. But this is the first truth that Asaph is reminded of when he goes into the temple. The next one is that God guides and upholds his people. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. In the midst of Asaph's embitterment, in the midst of his anger, his resentment, his sinful thoughts, even in the midst of his cruel stupidity. Asaph states, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. It was God holding Asaph's hand through this trial, through this season. Steve Lawson says, Asaph attributed the restoration of his spiritual sight to the faithfulness of God who was always with him. God would not let go of him, even when he drifted into spiritual apathy. It was God holding on to his right hand, not vice versa, that made the difference. In spite of our sin and our doubt and our struggle, God is still with us, holding our right hand. And this is such a comfort. But that's the second truth. The third truth is that God is his greatest treasure. Verse 25, he says, Who am I, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In a world that constantly parades shiny objects, power, fame, money, in a world that shows us those things, God is still our greatest treasure. And like Asaph, there's going to be many times in your life when you're tempted to think that he's not. That truck is more important this job is way more important. That position is way more important. But remember this. There is nothing that this world has to offer that is more precious, more valuable, more lasting, and more worthy of your praise than our Lord himself the best part about eternity isn't going to be the things that we get. It's going to be the person that we're with. And we don't have to wait until heaven to be encouraged by this truth. God is with us, holding our right hand. As New Testament believers, the Spirit is in us. Treasure that. Don't look at the world and think those things are better. 
We have God. He is the greatest treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Even if this isn't your current outwardly desire, this is your soul's inner desire. Your soul longs for the Lord. So even in seasons where you're tempted to think that it might not, remember this, that you are created to love the Lord, to worship him. Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And we circle back now to the conclusion of this coming-of-age journey. Let's look at verse 20. Let's start at 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Remember, this is the same person throughout this whole story, the same person who is envious of the evil ones, who is jealous of all the things that they had, almost buying into the goods that they were offering him, so much so that he was convinced that everything he'd done was in vain. Now he tells us that it is good to be near God. And I am especially thankful for men like Asaph, other men throughout Scripture that are transparent and vulnerable with us, that share the struggles that are going on, that God uses to tell us of His goodness, that He uses to encourage us when we're in the same kind of struggle. You see, some of us might be in some of the most formative years of our life. Some of us have more of life to be lived than we've lived yet. So many decisions to make. What job will we take? What school will we go to? Will we go to school? Who should I marry? And there's going to be so many different tests of our faith that have yet to be had. To that person, I say to you, don't be tempted by the shiny objects. As one who lived in it for 19 years, I can promise you that it is not worth it. Don't buy into the lies of our culture. Don't take the shortcut. Truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. Some of us are in the middle of our life, kind of at the the fork in the road where we've lived just as much as we're going to be lived yet. Contemplating the road that lies ahead, kind of counting the cards, the score from what we've lived so far and kind of having this assessment of, okay, this is where we've been so far. What changes did need to be made and which direction do I need to go now? To you I say, you may have suffered 
You may have experienced loss. Your unbelieving friends and family might have more stuff than you, less pain, less worry. But that stuff is only temporary. That house will one day fall. That truck will one day have rust on it. Cling to the Lord. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And some of us are at the stage in life where we must be reminded to finish strong. Where we've lived more than we have left to live. We might be tempted to throw in the towel, kick our feet back and say, I've lived a good life for the Lord up until this point. I just want to kick back and enjoy the pleasures and comforts of this world. To you, I say, fight, finish, and keep. Fight, finish, and keep. Like Paul said to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There's so much experience and wisdom that you have to share with those below you, to share with those in the middle of their life, to share with those at the beginning of their life. You've experienced this struggle in ways that we have yet to experience. So don't be selfish. Share that with us. Teach us, guide us, encourage us. When we're tempted to buy that truck or buy that house, come alongside us, wrap your arm around us, encourage us, remind us. It's not all that it's made out to be. Fight, finish, and keep. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. We have, we are, or we will, at some point, be met with the seemingly abundant life that this unbelieving world has to offer. And we might be tempted to follow its course. We will see the quick, easy remedy that sin flashes in front of our faces. And we'll be tempted to go in that direction. But as we look out and we're attracted to all of these shiny objects, let us remember, as the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us not look into the world for health or wealth or happiness. Let us walk the straight and narrow path, no matter how bumpy it might be, knowing that the hope that we have is beyond this life. Let us remember the words of our God seen in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And thank the Lord that that is true. Thank the Lord that he hasn't given me over to all of these selfish desires. Because one day we'll answer to that. And what will we have when that day comes? There's a quote that just came to my mind. I don't even know who it's from, so if I could cite it, I would. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply 
to the cross I cling. That day when it comes, let this be the song of our heart. That when we come to the Lord on that day, when we have to answer for all of our life, let us come empty-handed, clinging to the cross, to the grace that we've been given that we did not deserve. And as we ask ourselves the question, why is it worth it? As we look at the world around us, and we really wrestle with this, let us always be reminded of the simple truth found in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Let's pray.